This morning, we're gonna, good morning to everybody. We're back in action, and again, that's all we have. have to, there's a few here. If you were here last week, it's the same one you had last week. Um, we're also going to do a little bit in Genesis. I'm going to leave a little time for that because we really desperately need to get a biblical worldview because that's definitely not what the world is telling us. We need a biblical worldview. And I want to help us understand why we're still here. Because <laughs> okay. sometimes we start looking around, we wonder. Okay. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for <clears throat> the fellowship of the saints and for everything you've done for us. Thank you for the word of God. May we cry out to you and trust you in everything as we live in a world that's full of evil and wickedness and we're confronted with ideas we know are not true continually. May we go to your word and have our minds renewed so that we could be grounded in your truth. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If we need more chairs out of this room, we'll get them. This is what I found when I got here. So we were going to go to Acts 15, 40, and 41. 15, 40, and 41. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Remember, last week we talked about this uh, dispute or disagreement about John Mark and how Paul didn't want to travel with him because they'd had a previous problem. And so John Mark went his way and Paul went with here was Silas and I think we discussed the fact that uh, even during the time of the apostles there everything wasn't just downhill and with the wind Do you, if you know what I mean as long as we have human beings we're going to have issues we're going to have to try to decide things we're going to have disagreements I've been in the ministry since the early 1970s and I can tell you that I've never, ever been in any group anywhere where there wasn't disputes. Because it's human beings. Okay? The only place where there's no disputes is in cults. Because everybody that doesn't line up gets either thrown out or killed. All right? So as long as you have people with free thinking and freedom... Uh, there are going to be different ideas. And there was, as we saw, even between Paul. And there's nothing wrong with John Mark. He ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. Okay? But Paul didn't want to travel with him because he felt that John Mark had deserted him earlier. And he wasn't happy about that, so he wouldn't travel with somebody else. And we need to learn to go forward and not decide everything's the end of the world. Now, being committed here uh, is, uh, is used in, Acts, in this way in Acts 14, 26, but in other contexts, it means betrayed. Now, they weren't betrayed by the brethren, they're committed. It's important, uh, dear ones, 
to learn how context is important. There's these chairs in the front are just begging for somebody to sit in. And uh, <laughs> the context is important. When we're studying the Bible, we're always wanting to look for the author's intent. That's what determines meaning, authorial intent. And it's good to have the Greek and the context and the concordances and everything, but the author intent inter- determines the meaning, not um, just some word always has to mean the same thing all the time. We see that in English. Sometimes we wonder how people are using certain words, and it makes you wonder what do they mean when they say that. So here it means that they were put and chosen and set apart for that. Let me read Dr. Schnabel on all of this. Paul chooses Silas as co-worker, a leading Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, who was a Roman citizen. The fact that the first we, we passage, CM 1610, is connected with Paul's travels from Antioch via Syria, Cilicia, Galatia, Phrygia, and Messia to Troas, is most plausibly interpreted to indicate that Luke was among Paul's associates as an eyewitness during this period. Okay, so on this trip that Paul is embarking on, we find Luke there. He starts saying, we. He's there. So Luke was an eyewitness to some of the things that he wrote about. The other material where he wasn't the eyewitness, he gathered from sources that were. So Luke, and Luke wrote Luke Acts. So Luke is going to join him on this. <clears throat> Back to Schnabel. Silas would have had the support of the Jerusalem church and could testify to the outcome of the apostles' council. Remember the context. They had gotten together because some of the people who had become Christians from the sect of the Pharisees had demanded that Gentile believers would be circumcised and commanded to keep the law of Moses. And this was certainly a huge threat to the unity of the church. So therefore they gathered in Jerusalem to decide the matter and speeches were given and the determination was that they were not under the law of Moses. They did not have to be circumcised, but they had to basically dissociate from any kind of pagan uh, situation, anything associated with temple paganism. And then from eating blood, because that would have been just a bridge too far for any of the Jews. And uh, that was, I preached on that. Some people think it goes all the way back to Noah. I'm going to quote that here a little later if we get to it. Uh, because even at the time of Noah, the blood was not to be ate. So I, frankly, I don't think I would do it. Does anybody here like blood sausage? 
I guess we're safe. So they had that a council, and so that letter had to be brought to the different churches. And since the letter had been entrusted to Silas alongside Judas Barsabbas, the presence of Silas, says Snabel among Paul's missionary associates, signals the unity of the church consisting of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, a unity that was confirmed and maintained by the Apostles' Council. Um, now, one of the things that you'll probably notice in the back of your Bible are Paul's missionary journeys. And so there's, it's not totally clear when his second journey began. Some would say this right here is the beginning of his second missionary journey. But technically, at the beginning, he's going to visit previous existing churches and strengthen them concerning the decision of the Jerusalem Council. And then later heads out to other churches. But it's just a technicality. Either way, this is where it gets started. And it turns into Paul's second missionary journey. <clears throat> Strengthening uh, the brethren is also used in Acts 14.22, 15.30, and 18.23. Acts 1430 How does one go about strengthening churches? Well, the fact that we have come to Christ and believe the gospel and been joined together to the Lord by the Lord it makes us people who need continual strengthening because the word of God is our food. <laughs> and the church has to be fed pure spiritual food. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. I firmly believe and I know this from scripture that when God saves somebody of course everyone saved is born of the Holy Spirit. Unless you are born again you shall not see the kingdom of God. Those who are born of God are born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. The entire Bible. Genesis to Revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the very Spirit that regenerates, another word for born again, regenerates Christian, Christians inspired the Bible. We are born of the word. Spoken, written, however we hear it, heard through our ears, we need the word of God. And this is just the way it is. It's reality. When the word of God is taught purely and clearly and forthrightly, it's always and necessarily beneficial to Christians. That's how it is. As I have been in the ministry for well over 40 years, ever since the early 80s, when I finally got my theology straightened out, I realized that we got to teach the Word of God and nothing else. Because, and it, and Somebody, it doesn't mean nobody's going to be disgusted with us. And it doesn't mean 
people are going to leave and, and all kinds of things will happen. We don't have any control over that. But we do have control over what we teach. And if we teach the pure word of God, we will benefit the hearers and we will always benefit the hearers and we can't help but benefit the hearers. And that benefit will be the renewing of the minds of God's people. And our unity is always a spiritual unity that starts with the word of God being clearly taught. And if we can't decide anything else, we can at least decide we need the word of God. And preachers, and thank God I had, I was in a group that I would now disagree with some of their doctrine. But when I was in Bible college, I had great teachers who were committed to the word of God. And they told me that if I'm going to teach, I need to study and I need to learn the Greek, learn the Bible and study and be prepared. And one of my teachers said, if you happen to be on a certain verse that you're preaching on, in your church and some traveling professor from it happens to be from some seminary somewhere who's an expert happens to be in your town and comes to your church you know the verse you're preaching better than anybody in there including that professor because he because you were the one to decide you're going to preach that verse so you should study Study to show yourself approved. So, um, and I, in the early 80s, I, that came back to my mind. I thought, those guys were right. Those guys were absolutely right. That was, that's the way it should be. That's what I got to do. And so I set out to use every resource at my disposal, starting 1983, to make sure that it was my job to teach, that when it's time, I know what I'm talking about, and I did the study. And I know the passage. And it's interesting that God does use that. doesn't mean there haven't been any problems or issues or people haven't got mad and left. I was teaching through Galatians, verse by verse by verse. I was pretty sick at the time. But, I, but uh, however haltingly and feebly I was able to get up in front of the congregation, I still taught Galatians. And there were some people left. And they left, ironically, over the issue that was supposedly settled in Jerusalem Council. They wanted the law of Moses taught to the church and tell people that are bound by the law of Moses. And that was already decided in Jerusalem. And I just said no. And the reason they were mad is because I was teaching through Galatians that contradicts what they believed. And they were getting their idea from some time in church history. So it's interesting that even when there were some people that split off and left, said no, not one of them, zero, zero. We even had an elder leave over this because they wanted the law of Moses taught to the church. Zero ever once came and brought a verse that I actually taught on out of Galatians and opened it up and sat down and looked at it and showed me how I misinterpreted that verse. I'm not saying I haven't done that. I have misinterpreted verses. 
because I didn't understand how to read it properly, and someone pointed out it, and I changed. But they never did. You know why? Because they couldn't. You know why they couldn't? Because they were wrong. And you know why they didn't find out they were wrong? Because they didn't care what the Bible said. They only cared what John Calvin said, or his followers, in that case. Because Calvin taught three uses of the law, one of which was to scour through Moses and decide which ones you want to preach to the Christians. But it's already cited in Jerusalem by apostles. But that's okay. I can live with that. I would rather have that happen than me not teach the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? If I miss teach the Bible or miss something, which does happen, it just makes me sick. It bugs me. I just can't stand it. I can't wait to get back and make it right. I want to know what it says. Because there's the pure word of God. That's what God's going to use. That's how he's going to change lives. And I know that. So when they're strengthening the churches, they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching Christ, they're teaching the pure word of God, and they're helping people grow in the grace and knowledge of God. There's nothing greater. I don't know who the Lord might hear this, but if you're a young man called to the ministry, take that to heart. It's worth knowing. Make sure you know the text that you're teaching on and understand it as well as you can. Be prepared. Show yourself a workman prepared, ready to love the people and serve the people and teach them the pure word of God. That's how you strengthen the churches. And the side benefit of it is God will change your own life. Because his word has that effect. You'll grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. So strengthening is what they did. They didn't leave the churches to go figure things out on their own. They taught them the pure word of God. Now here is uh, uh, a map, if you can see it up there, of the, some of the areas mentioned. Cyprus, Antioch. And this is Syrian Antioch. Not the Pisidian Antioch we saw earlier. Um, and this is the one that's closer to Jerusalem than Pisidian Antioch is. And this is the area of the world that Paul was teaching in and preaching in. Syria, Cilicia, Antioch, and Cyprus. As I've said many times, the places in the Bible actually exist. It's not the Book of Mormon. It's not science fiction. The truth is our friend. Whatever the facts are, they are a benefit to Christianity and to the church. And now we have Timothy introduced by Luke. Luke has an interesting technique and he uses it throughout Luke-Acts, somebody will be introduced and then later becomes a very important person uh, as, as things go on. There'll be somebody standing here. Let me give you the most famous example. There was a man named Saul 
who was holding the coats of those that stoned Stephen. That's how Luke introduces him. There's Paul. Saul of Tarsus was holding... Yeah, we're just using what was left from last week. We're using the same ones that we had last week. Saul of Tarsus, and uh, he does that throughout. So here's Timothy introduced. He'll become important throughout the New Testament, actually. Uh, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So we saw earlier um, in Acts that Paul had preached in Derby and Lystra. You see, uh, one of the things that is very important to know, and this will, if we know this, will cause us to preach the gospel. The doctrine of election is true. All right? But it's also true that we don't know who the elect are. And we'll see as we go forward that people are mentioned. God will say, I have many people in the city, and nobody's been there to preach yet. He knows, the Lord knows those who are his, but we don't know who they are. So that's, you just need to know that much. But see, that causes gospel preaching. All right? Because if you go somewhere and you preach the gospel, there's probably some of God's elect there. We didn't know that. And they'll hear. And they'll respond. And that's how the church is built. So the universal call, we're commanded by God to teach the universal call to everyone in the whole world. And God uses that. And the universal call includes preaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's very sad that in evangelicalism, the universal call has been confused, changed, turned into something it really isn't, assuming in many cases that people know who Jesus is, when there are in fact many Jesuses out there. The cults have their own Jesus, and there are many false Christs. And so the universal call needs to be preaching about the Christ of the Bible, And if you've heard me for very long, you know that I explain who Jesus is. I love to teach the person of Christ, including the fact he's the eternal creator. As it says in John 1, 1 through 18, and so on. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Because many of the false teachers have a created Jesus, who's a man who becomes the Christ through some process. But the Bible teach, teaches Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the true creator, who created all things. So that tells us he's transcendent. Okay, and then I also preach on the virgin birth, the, the sinlessness of Christ, that he was fully human and fully God, that he lived a sinless life. Preach that he died on the cross predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. 
that he shed his blood to atone for sins, that he was raised on the third day as he predicted, that he was raised bodily, and that he bodily appeared to many witnesses, and that he bodily ascended into heaven. And so I preach that continually because I want to make sure people know what Christ we're talking about. Now, I'm not saying you can't have a shorter version as required by the situation. When Paul says preach Christ, all of that's in mind. But sometimes he has a, we hear a shorter version. You need to turn to Christ and repent and believe the gospel. The God that we should preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a shorter, it's what was expected of us. So I've told young preachers, here, here's what you least need to get. Who, who is who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. I just told you who he is. I just told you what he did. Let me tell you why you need him. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin. Against all the sin and unrighteousness of men. We're lost. We're headed for hell. And if we don't repent, that's where we're going to go. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sins by shedding his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. What does he, respect, what does he expect of us? To repent and to believe the gospel. What does repentance mean? Well, it's used synonymously with another term in Acts Epistrepho means to turn. To turn from living for self, living for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, and turn to God and live for him, according to his terms, by grace through faith for the forgiveness of sins. So a longer version, but all of that needs to be taught to the people of God. And the elect, whoever they may be, we don't will rejoice to hear it. They'll just, the light will go on. They'll go from darkness to light. And they'll want to serve God. And that's it. And then we teach the details when we teach the whole counsel of God. And what will cause that to happen is a conviction in the hearts of the preachers that that's what God's going to use. He'll always use it. We don't need to do a poll to see what we think is going to be popular. Because the truth is always a minority report, isn't it? So teach the word of God and do so without any uh, embarrassment or shame or hesitancy. Preach the word. And I'll be talking about that in some of my sermons coming up. In season and out of season. Preach the word. So that's what he's doing when he's strengthening the churches. Now notice that Luke mentions here that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman. Now, according to our sources, having a Jewish mother would mean that the Jews would have considered him Jewish. Uh, at that time in history. And so this is going to lead to uh, Paul having Timothy circumcised, not because it was necessary, but it was the best way 
to go forward. Other in other cases, he didn't have people circumcised like Titus. So it was just different depending on the situation. But it wasn't the law of God. It was part of liberty. Now, here's another map. Some of the places mentioned here. Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Cilicia. Now, I don't know if I have any pictures left on here. I guess I ran out of pictures. But in some of my, I think last week I showed you pictures, the train was not exactly an easy little jog. How many of you know they didn't have bike trails back then? They didn't have any freeways? In fact, it was very difficult sometimes to, to get through difficult train with robbers and uh, perils all the way. And we'll see that in Acts when we get to Paul's shipwreck. It's a very serious situation. Now, as I promised, I want to spend a little time. See, for, look, let me just go through this slide here, and then I'll go to Genesis again. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. His mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek. Now, you might want to accuse Paul of hypocrisy, which would be wrong. And that would be, well, they just decided... He didn't have to be gen- circumcised at the Jerusalem Council. So why is he doing this? Well, he wanted to, there, there's a passage that I'll be covering in one of my upcoming sermons, give no offense to Jews, no Greeks, nor the church of God. And this would be just a, an offense to think that, well, his mother was Jewish, so he's Jewish, And one of the false things they said about Paul, which will come to a head in Acts chapter 21, is that some people were claiming that Paul told uh, Jewish Christians that they were not allowed to circumcise their children or to keep the law of Moses as part of their own personal liberty as Jewish believers, which was a false statement. So Paul did some things to make sure that didn't happen, even though it still did. So that's probably what's going on here. Because we see here in Galatians 2.3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this is a matter of liberty, not a matter of law. And the principle that motivated Paul was the greater good of the gospel. And that's what I'm going to try to emphasize as we look at building a biblical worldview out of Genesis. Because we live in a very, very difficult time right now in, in the world, and particularly here in America, particularly here in Minnesota. And many people are wondering what's going on and why. And how could it be so bad? But we need to realize that during the entire church age, the number one principle that's got to motivate us is the greater good of the gospel. Because what God is doing is he's still populating the kingdom of God. And if the gospel's preached, no matter how bad it gets, 
some people will be saved. And I'll show you from Genesis that this is a very consistent worldview. So here Paul is doing something that he believed was for the greater good of the gospel, given the circumstances. Was it the law of God? But that's what was best he believed in the case of Timothy. Is there any questions about this? Yes. Why do you think Timothy wasn't circumcised as a baby if his mom was Jewish? Because his dad must not have wanted it. (laughs) There was a patriarchal society. All right. Which case? Let's go to some Genesis. I covered this last week, but I want to introduce it again because there's some new folks here. A couple chairs up here, a couple there. And remember, after the flood, and they came out of the ark, Noah made a sacrifice. Verse 20 says, Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and he took from all the clean animals and from all the clean birds and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then it says, And Yahweh smelled a smoothing, soothing fragrance. And Yahweh said to himself, Never again will I curse the ground for the sake of humankind, because the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from his youth. Now notice what it says here. Notice carefully. As long as the earth endures, seed and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night will not cease. Boy, there's a lot to say about this. I covered this last week. I'm going to do it again. Because it really needs to be built into our hearts and minds what a biblical worldview is. Now, never again will I curse the ground for the sake of humankind. Now, I I mentioned last week that this seems odd, and it did to me, till a couple of weeks ago when I realized that there was something going on that I'd missed up until just recent, just this last month. Because it says in Genesis 6, 5, and Yahweh saw that the evil of humankind was great upon the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was always evil. So, the question, and I addressed this last week, was, well, before the flood, the inclination of the heart of humankind was evil. After the flood, the inclination of the human, heart of humankind is evil. So what changed? What good did the flood do? Well, something changed. I'll tell you what changed. The wicked angels that caused all of this in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, are consigned to the abyss. And the Nephilim are wiped out. And now what history is going to be about, and God's not going to let that happen. So God, what history is going to be about, from here on, is humankind. God doesn't have a plan of salvation for fallen angels. But he has a plan of salvation for humans. That humans are sinful goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The flood wasn't designed to end the sin problem for humans. 
The flood was designed to stop what was going on so we could get back to dealing with humans. Does that make any sense? All right. The sacrifice is called soothing aroma. That gives us a preview. By the way, if you study Genesis, you'll see the roots of everything you read throughout the rest of the Bible. The the beginnings are all there in Genesis. So there's going to need to be sacrifice. God is well pleased with sacrifice. Now it turns out the the ultimate sacrifice that's pleasing to God is the sacrifice of his own son, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And uh, we also know as we go on here that God wants humans to multiply. Um, Genesis 9.1, if you are looking at your Bible, you'll see it. It's right after the verses I quote here. Genesis 9.1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now this is something that God always intended, that humans be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now let me make some applications to biblical worldview. God intends that humans be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's not a sign of evil. The pagans in our society see the humans multiplying as evil. And that population must be controlled. And that there are way too many humans and that somehow or another we got to get... Some people propose that billions need to die so that the real nature people can live on a paradise on earth. Now, if you've read the book, Nazi... Yes, uh, Ed. I was curious if you knew anything about the Georgia Guidestones, where they come from. and The what? Georgia Guidestones. No, I do not know that. They uh, have some doctrine written on them that most of humanity is supposed to die. Well, I know the deep ecology movement taught that. Probably still does. I had, I researched that from primary sources when I was in seminary and wrote about it. It's called deep ecology. That humans need to die lots and lots and lots of them, so that the enlightened ones can live at one. If you read the book Nazi Oaks, now republished as Nazi ecology, very enlightening. Hitler wanted all kinds of people to die. So that the Volk, German for people, the German Volk could have their oneness with nature in a paradise. And he needed room for that. That's why he wanted more and more territory. He was going to wipe out everybody else and have a paradise on earth. That is so well documented in the book Nazi Oaks by Mark Musser. I have to, I love that book. I've read it twice. And it's got 1,500 and some footnotes. And primary source, including Hitler himself. So, 
Nazi Oaks now republishes Nazi Ecology, second edition. Same book. Mark Musser, M-U-S-S-E-R. Fantastic book. Now, we are living in a world where the prevailing religion is neo-pagan nature worship. Okay? And the idea of the neo-pagan nature people is that the big enemy of the good and the right is biblical Christianity. And believing things as such as Genesis. And that nature is a goddess who wants to be worshipped. And if we worship the goddess, Mother Earth, she'll take care of us. Now, biblical worldview says that there's a fall and that the fall affected not only man, but nature. And that the Garden of Eden is not going to be found on the earth until there's a new heaven and a new earth after judgment. That no matter what is done on the earth, even if the most radical deep ecology zealot had their way and six, seven billion people died and the rest could have their paradise, an expanded version of Hitler's vision, the earth would still be fallen. Nature would still give up tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, monsoons, typhoons, global warming, global cooling. Nature is fallen. And that doesn't change no matter what they try to do. Only God can change it. But what's more serious is that man has fallen. And the Garden of Eden was there for man to enjoy. But Adam and Eve were removed from Eden and told, and I'm just recounting this all from memory, that they were going to have to toil on the earth. And there was going to be the sweat of their brow, and that thistles are going to grow, and they're going to have to work just to have enough food to eat. And so that's the state that the earth is in. But nevertheless, it's reiterated that there be a fruitful multiply and fill the earth. So what's the point of being fruitful, multiplying, and fill the earth when you live in a fallen world with fallen men and sin is multiplied? So we're reading. Because God has a plan of salvation. Some of these sinners, a remnant, will be saved. And that they will be people who will worship God on his terms. And they will love God because of God's grace to save them. And that they will be people taken from every tribe and tongue on the earth, Jews and Gentiles, and they will be the ones who will be the citizens of the kingdom of God. And they will praise God and love God and honor God, 
and they will be with him forever to partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. They will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth. And that God will thus be honored and glorified. And so God says here that because of the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from his youth, nor will I ever again destroy all life as I have done. He's not going to make the curse on the earth worse than what it already was from the original fall. And he's not going to flood it. And there's a promise. Please read the promise of God. Did you know that God cannot lie? Good. As long as the earth endures, seed and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. What is that telling us? It'll be habitable. It'll be habitable. They'll be able to grow enough food to feed people despite droughts and difficulties. It'll be a battle, be sweat of the ground, thistles will keep wanting to grow. You have to pull them out. You got to figure out how to live. But the earth will be habitable. So right there tells me the whole global warming doomsday is a lie from Satan. The climate may get colder, the climate may get hotter, but it won't fundamentally change whether humans can live on the earth from this time of the flood on. Brian, some years the tomatoes will do great, and some years you'll have a problem. But you'll be able to grow something, right? Hey, I was going to say that God has not only provided, but he's provided so abundantly that the farmers can afford to dump hundreds of thousands of gallons of milk down the drain. We can slaughter our pigs because nobody can take them to a process. We got more than we can even use. We can use, you, got, you know... I know. And so, and, and by the way, yes, go ahead. They've gotten so good at growing food that in recent years, childhood obesity has been a bigger problem than starvation. I don't know if you've seen that. Now, even, even, dear saints, even in the best case scenario, we're still under fall and we still die. We're not disease-free. We're not in our glorified bodies. There's still suffering. There's still difficulty. But the point of this is the habitable earth filled with humans is the arena for the gospel. We need to think that way. Why are people so angry? Why is all this stuff going on and people tumults and burning things, whatever. The reason, I think, is that people are expecting paradise on earth and all they do is get a fallen world that we've always had. No paradise, we'll just try to burn it all down. Because there's still sin. Well, the Bible tells us it will be that way. Yes. Well, and to answer that first, and then I wanted to say my other thing, but, you know, for me, I know what makes me so angry about all this is the lies. I hate being lied to like we have been. And, um, you know, so whether it's evolution, whether it's the global warming, climate change stuff, it's just so annoying. 
But um, the other thing is, is I really encourage people, if you haven't, but Answers.tv, they've had this um, geneticist who has been talking, he's going to be writing a book about rewriting human history. And so they're using genetics and archaeology, and the amazing things that they are coming out with is astounding. And the one thing he talked about that was a wow factor is the, you know, we've been told and lied to about the Amazon rainforest and how we have to protect it. He would, they've said that they have now dug through the Amazon rainforest floor, and they've gone through the different, and they've been able to identify the different layers and what was grown. And they said that there was an area where it looked like a field and wildflowers, but they said underneath that, guess what we discovered? Corn. They said it's never, it, it, you know, in the day, the um, ancient people there were growing and harvesting corn and um, cultivated trees. What does it say? Seed time and harvest. Yes. And so we have been lied to that we have to protect the rainforest. That's what happens when we leave things go and don't take care of it. Well, the point is, the pagan worldview says Earth takes care of us. The biblical worldview says we need to take care of the Earth as humans who have been given that responsibility. Even before the fall, even before the fall, it says in Genesis 2 that Adam's job was to till and keep the garden. He still had work to do. We're not going to lay on the beach and wait for the grapes to drop into our mouth. <laughs> or whatever idyllic view of this romantic, perfect. So the pagans have no eternal hope. So when things are sinful on the earth, they become irate and they want to burn down the, the, everything. And, and they're it's just, it's just not a biblical worldview. So we need to have a biblical worldview. And so not only am I going to, as I preach through the New Testament, I like to keep going back to Genesis and get back to the foundation of what world we're living in. So there was a sacrifice as a, in 820. And then 9-1, Lord blessed no one his son and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Let me quote from Dr. Hamilton. I have some better sources now than I had when I taught through Genesis 20 years ago. Um, the International Commentary on the Old Testament. That, it's a new volume. He said, It is possible to retain the causal nuance of key and observe here not a contradiction, but a vivid demonstration of God's grace. In spite of justification, justifiable motive, Motivation for continued judgment. God chooses not to exercise that option. Then he says, yet there is no evidence that the phenomena associated with the curse in Genesis 3.17, such as pain in childbearing or hard work on unyielding soil, come to an abrupt end in post-flood days. So we're still in the same situation as Genesis 3.17. So really, if you look at the flood was designed to deal with the fallen angels, the Nephilim, and that situation. Now we're back to the, the world we're in now. Yes, Brian. Would you say that the, uh, the fallen angels who uh, went with the daughters of men, that 
the seed was tainted and also God got rid of the corrupted animals as well. So therefore, that would tell me that the animals were corrupted. Well, the animals that end up on the earth after the flood were the ones that were there before. That's the point of two of the, of the ark. But what I believe was wiped out were these Nephilim. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's an enigma. It's not addressed in the Bible. We know the last one was probably at the time of David. So maybe the same thing happened again, but only in isolated cases. And eventually it was gone. That's the only explanation the Bible doesn't tell us. But I'm saying that the human race is as it was when they came out of the ark. We can do one more, or at least introduce another slide. Humans are to fill the earth. You say that, if you write an editorial on this, you better hire armed guards for your house. Because they hate that humans fill the earth. You know, they, but they're the enlightened ones. See, what you need to know about the neo-pagan eco-Nazis, if you want to call them that, is they consider themselves the saviors. I researched this when I was in seminary, and I read the journals that, where these articles were written by the eco-feminists and so on, and they literally come out and say what they intend, that most of the people need to die so that the rest can live in harmony with nature in a paradise-like condition. That was Hitler's hope for his people. But it's all a big lie, and it's a rebellion against what it says here. Okay? Humans living and multiplying on the earth is not evil. These humans will be the arena for the gospel. God knows how to deal with this, it's called judgment. See, dear ones, think of it. The fallen angels and what happened, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, God dealt with it through the flood. This isn't the way it's going to be. We're going to have humans. It's going to be a plan of salvation for humans. Fallen as they are, but yet retain the image of God. That's reiterated in Genesis, even after the flood. And God will save some. Then the destruction comes at a future time after a lot of things that happen and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Does that make sense? Everybody that doesn't believe the Bible is angry with that and they want earth to be paradise now. And they're angry that it isn't. And if it isn't paradise, they want to have a revolution. We can't stand the fact this isn't paradise. So let's make it hell. That's what Hitler did. Yes. I think we're all seeing this worldview pan out, and especially in the state where the people who are in long-term care, assisted living, 
they're not considered um, productive, I think, for the collector. So yep. we have 80% of people living in all uh, the deaths from the coronavirus are in nursing homes and long-term. Great. It also influences. I understand. That's why we need a biblical world view. That human beings are created in the image of God, but fallen. And that God tells us to take care of the widows and the orphans and so on. And Christians have always done that. Okay? But if you look at the pagans, they want abortion. They don't want, they don't like this. They don't like what God said. Yes. How are we supposed to do that? Help these people when the governor has made a mandate that we cannot get into the nursing homes. They cannot come out of the nursing homes and they're isolating these individuals to the point that they're wanting to die. Uh, we we do what we can, how we can. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I did with my mom. She can come to the front door, and I come and bring her whatever she needs. And in her case, she can get out. Paul, you know that. You, you work there, right? Yeah, my mom is doing okay. I, I'm. I mean, I, I don't. I can't. I can't fix every evil that the world has out here. But here's what here's my concern. Christians need to hang on to their Christian worldview, or they won't even have a basis for thinking of an answer. We've got to have a biblical worldview. Humans are created in the image of God, and they're valuable, and life is to be nourished and protected. That's a biblical worldview. Now let me, oh boy, time flies when you're having fun. God blessed Noah and his sons. Let me just read this slide, which is all scripture. It said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and dread of you shall be upon every animal of the earth and every bird of heaven and everything that moves on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they will be given. Okay, people just sort of gloss over this. This shows that this whole vegan animal rights isn't a biblical worldview. It's not a sin to catch fish. It's not a sin to eat a steak or whatever. This is just what it says here. That humans create an image of God are to be distinguished from the rest of the created beings. But that goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and then after the fall, to reiterate Genesis 3, the humans are imagers of God. And that there's some distinction between human life and animal life. I know that, you know that, I hope, but the evolutionists don't know that. They have no ground for any kind of morals because they don't know that God's ever said anything. They think morals evolve from nature. You don't get morals from nature. Nature is the king of the jungle. Wins. Morals say 
Protect the weak and the innocent, the people in the nursing home. Yes, Peter. But um, back to Barb's comment, I think there's a tension between being a good citizen and honoring your uh, leaders and then meeting uh, our Christian obligations to fellow Christians and fellow men. I think some people who are business owners have experienced that. Some people who have adult parents that are isolated have experienced that. And for us as Christians with the biblical worldview, there is a tension about being both a good citizen and a good steward. And right. so I think we're all kind of trying to wrap there is a tension there, and that's in, in ethics we call it the greater good. We need to, the best we can from the Bible, derive what is the greater good. The reason why we have civil authorities, which I'm going to get to next time I'm in this section here, is so that life can be lived on the earth and the gospel can go. It was civil authorities in the time of Paul that made it possible for the gospel to go to Rome. Yes. Well, I'm kind of feeding off of you know these comments too, but you know the Bible tells us that we should not participate in the deeds of darkness, but we should expose them. And I think that's important. And we have a First Amendment to be able to speak freely, but the government on down is trying to keep our mouth shut, and we have to speak. That's why this whole stopping of churches was so wrong. The first thing they did is isolated us from our family so that we could not gather and speak with one another and gather encouragement. That was wrong. Well, there, yes, and there's a lawsuit in New York that, I, that may go to the, if it goes to the Supreme Court, it'll overturn it. I know it will. Because they have such strong standing. Because there's special, special pleading now where the they're saying you can gather and protest, but you can't gather and worship. So there's lawsuits working their way through on that. But we're better off with civil government than we are with anarchy. Can we say amen to that? Yeah. And the duty of the civil government is to restrain evil. Now, we know that throughout history, there's been times when the government promotes evil. And it's a horrible time to live like the Dark Ages. Yes? I was just going to say another thing that uh, I know that God gives us spheres of influence and you know, He's prepared good deeds and the man's supposed to do, but the other thing is that it kind of falls heavy on us sometimes. It's like we, we got to remember if God set us up for doing things, we got to go to Him in prayer. Yes, yeah, so in fact, we're going to pray for the civil authorities. But can you see where I'm trying to get, get out of this? What a biblical worldview looks like? We're living in the same world that Noah was, only after Messiah came. So now the sacrifice has been given once for all. Noah offered a sacrifice that was soothing to God. Now we live into one where Christ's sacrifice was given once for all, and we honor him. Let me at least finish reading the verse here. Genesis 9, 1 through 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be for you as food. As I gave the green plants to you, I now give you everything. Only you should not eat raw flesh with the blood in it. Well, we just addressed that issue came up in Jerusalem in Acts. Okay? So there is the foundation. Now, I will... Let me just say this. 
the big picture for us especially, let's talk about the church, the church age. In, in uh, Acts, we're talking about the church. From the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven to take up his throne at the right hand of God, Psalm 110.1, to the rapture of the church during that entire period is the church age. God's purpose during the church age from Pentecost to the rapture is that people from every tribe and tongue and geographical location on the earth would hear the gospel and that some will respond in faith and be saved and be part of that eternal kingdom. That's his revealed will. That's what he will do. The reason that the earth will persist and humans will live is so that that continues to go on. As bad as it's getting out there. And I'm a student of history. I'm telling you, it's been a lot worse. If you haven't studied the period from in the Dark Ages and the Hundred Year War and the plagues and the illiteracy and bad as it is now, it's not that bad. So this isn't proof that the rapture is going to happen at some certain time. It will be an unknown time. It'll be when one's sleeping, the other's awake. One's working in the field. One's taken, one's left behind. Ordinary life is when the rapture happens. When will that be? We don't know. So don't listen to the people say, oh, this is it. This is proof. It's going to be right away. They cannot know that. It's been worse. Okay? But as long as we're here, we pray for the civil authorities. We don't want lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work. We know that the lawless one will be revealed. It's during the tribulation. Right now, it's the spirit of lawlessness. Christians should never promote lawlessness. Christians should love God, worship God, pray for civil authorities, preach the gospel, be faithful in their duties, and pray always about all things, bringing everything to God in prayer, and trusting him. That's what we should do. Can we agree on that? And while we do, there's always going to be things we don't know. But here's what we do know. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you that we can gather. Thank you that you've taken care of us, protected us. Pray for those elderly people who can't get out, that you protect them and care for them and help us know what to do to help them. Lord, we pray that you protect each one and that you give us the boldness to preach your word and to be faithful in doing so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear saints. Next week I'll be preaching upstairs during the sermon time from Ephesians.